welcome back to Firewall. As usual, I'm your host, Bradley Tusk. My guest today is Saul Griffith. He's an inventor, an engineer, and he's wrote a great book called Electrify, an Optimist Playbook for a Clean Energy Future. So, Saul, thanks for joining us. I appreciate it. Hey, Bradley. So are, are you an optimist, or did you just become optimistic after writing this book? I think the honest answer is I'm slightly more optimistic than your average punter, definitely more optimistic than your con- average contemporary American, but I actually protested the use of the word optimism in the subtitle with the publisher because I think optimism sounds naive. Um, what, would, what, would, what did you want to call it? Uh, I know I wanted to call it electrify. Um, don't you all realize it's an emergency and we should get our shit together real quick or something like that? Um, I like that, yeah. Yeah, but uh, uh, MIT Press went with Optimist. To be perfectly honest, I think they made the right choice. I do think that most people, a lot of people have turned away, you know, put their blinders on on climate because it is mostly bad news. And I think um, people, you know, there's still, there's not a lot of time left, but you can still narrate a story where we, we kind of address this at scale. And uh, I think that that's the optimism in the book. It's like, look, we could do it. Yes, there are all the political barriers, but it's not technical or anything else at this point. Um, yeah, and we'll, we'll definitely talk through those. So, you know, you're identified as an inventor, but I think most people when they hear the phrase inventor think like Thomas Edison or Alexander Graham Bell or something like that. Is the job of an inventor today effectively the same as it was then, but with a lot better technology? Or, or do, has the definition of inventor changed too? I'm glad that they think Thomas Edison. When I hear the word inventor, I think Rick Moranis and <laughs> Honey, I Shrunk the Kids. The kids, yeah, yeah. Uh, and and I'm embarrassed by the word inventor. To me, it sounds a little eccentric, crazy tinkerer. Um, my wife loves. I'd like to write engineer when I'm filling out that form at the airport. Uh, if my wife fills it out for me, she always writes inventor and sneakers to herself. Um, you know, it's those can be dangerous. So like. I remember once I landed in Toronto and I think I wrote consultant and then I got like taken to some other room and like they had to call like the people I was meeting with. So yeah, it turns out the airport thing, you can't be totally cavalier on that because you can end up uh, stuck in a back room for a while. I do invent, I, you know, I have a lot of patents and uh, the business that I run other lab, we make new ideas. We then develop those new ideas until they're potentially a new product or a new company. And then we start those companies or launch those products. So, so w- w- what's your favorite one and which one do you think has been the most impactful? Uh, I love all of my children equally. The favorite is always the, the latest one. Um, I think I, I enjoyed, we worked on building this uh, airborne wind energy technology that ultimately went to Google. Um, and that was just a heroic task of making two mile long pieces of string for kites the size of 747s to fly on to generate electricity. So it was, it satisfied, satisfied a lot of the heroic moonshot engineering aspect of me. Um, most of the things we invent are in the energy space. So I've started a couple of solar companies with technologies to lower the cost of solar, um, air conditioning and HVAC technologies, um, st- energy storage companies. Uh, so, you know, across the board and then a bunch of things in robotics and manufacturing. So you won a MacArthur grant, a genius grant for the, I guess people don't know what that means, uh, in 2007. How different do you think your life has been over the last 15 years had you not won that? Um, I think my life would have been a lot better if I hadn't won it. Okay. Um, <laughs> Tell us why. 
It's actually called the MacArthur Fellowship, um, but it's known colloquially as the Genius Award. Uh, turns out once you've won that award, anytime you walk into a doorway, trip over something, make a basic math error, whoever is in the room and knows you got the award says, nice job, genius. Yeah, and, and probably puts it on uh, on YouTube. Um, well, it was on YouTube. So I think that, that you know, all jokes aside, it, it has it was a, it's a very useful, I think it's one of the nicest awards you can win because it's completely anonymous. You don't know, you get a call the morning of and they say, hey, you won this thing and it's great. It helps you get enough political or social cachet to do a lot of podcasts and things. So it, it helps. We only have genius grant winners on this podcast. Yeah, there you go. It only it it uh, it helps you elevate messages that are important. So I think that's been um, it's been uh, very useful in opening doors and giving me a platform to try and get better ideas out there, especially in energy and climate. Do you think people take your ideas more seriously simply because you have this credential now, or, or do you, th- you think it would be the same either way? I think tragically people still listen to me more than they should without, without investigating further because Saul Griffith, MIT, PhD, genius award. Um, and I think oh, those things still carry more currency then I think they should. It's not that I don't think they should ca- take make, uh, carry currency. I just think there's also a lot of people who don't have those things who just who make equal or greater contributions. Um, Do you think anyone who's ever won a Genius Award put it on their tombstone? Uh, I am sure of that. I once asked the guy who ran the whole Genius Award program. I said, "So you know, actually, I just got it, and they take you to this retreat, and the twenty people that get it that year, you're all together, and it's like really kind of lovely. There's poets and artists and engineers and scientists." And, it's a lovely, happy group of people because they just won this thing. And I went, I asked the, uh, the guy who runs the awards, so why don't you have every single winner together um, every year? Wouldn't that be amazing? Like all 500 or 1,000 of them. And he said, you know, we tried that once and it was disgusting. As soon as you get all those people in a the room, they, they really start to think they know how to run the world. <laughs> <laughs> and that's where Davos was invented. Um, exactly. So he, I, I actually, to the to the MacArthur Foundation's credit, I think they have some awareness about those things. So it's yeah, good. good for them. So, all right, the, the, the book. Um, what inspired you to 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 do this? You know, what what was that moment where like shit? If if I can just explain this the right way, I could really change a lot of minds here and, and change the whole trajectory of this issue. Um, I started writing a very similar book in two thousand and seven. Uh, that's when climate was a real, getting its first real um, attention in the US and venture capital money was flowing towards energy and climate issues. Uh, I had, my wife got pregnant shortly thereafter and that sort of slowed me down. And a friend of mine, David Mackay, the late David Mackay, wonderful Englishman, he wrote a very similar book called Sustainable Energy Without the Hot Air. So that put the pressure off me writing the first book I conceived of but then, um, you know, coming into the 2020 election and understanding what I know about climate, it's like, really, we have only one real shot left at hitting the one and a half degree climate target that uh, the world scientists recommend. And I think there was a lot of confusion about how you could possibly do that. No one really believed you could, but because I've studied a huge amount about the energy systems of the world and, you know, I am I'm nerdy enough that my hobby is energy data, believe it or not. Uh, 
I knew that I could narrate a story of how you get through this and that it was actually a good news story. And you could, you know, in some respects, the book was a reaction against the launch of the Green New Deal. Um, I think the aspirations of the Green New Deal are nice, but it had no detail and it, really, it didn't fill in anyone's imagination gap. It sounded confusing. So I really set out to write, look, if you're going to try and achieve the climate component of the Green New Deal, you need to electrify everything. This is the schedule you need to do it on. These are the technologies that work. We don't need any miracles. Um, we just we just have to do it. And in, and in some respects, I wrote it for an audience of one, which was whoever was going to be, when I was writing it, the primaries were about to start and I was writing it for whoever was going to be the new president. Uh, do, do you think Biden or people in the administration have seen the book? Uh, I know that people in the administration have seen the book. I don't know if Biden has seen the book. Um, I'm not sure if he's really a reader. Maybe he is. Like Obama, you knew, was just reading all the time, right? And Trump, you knew, was never reading. Like I kind of – not. I'm going to vote more likely Biden is not a reader. Hugo's giving me the thumbs up, so he, he agrees. I'm not um, sure that I want to comment. I'm, I'm yeah, sure. I'll, I'll, I'll let you off the hook on that one. Yeah. I'll, I'll, um, I'll take the heat on it. But I, 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 you know, to be honest, I think the book has already helped change, change some of the dialogue around energy in the US. And it certainly has had a huge impact in Australia and it's some impact in Europe. So I'm already, in some respects, I'm, I'm, I'm really happy with that we are the book has had some very positive influence on 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 turning the narrative about climate solutions from like doom and gloom to oh shit we can do it and actually our lives are going to improve and and it could be good all right so let's give you total political power and will at the moment um and tell assuming that anything could happen politically what's the what's the best path and cheapest and fastest path to reversing climate change. Do I get sixty votes in the Senate? Yep, I'm giving you. I'm giving you, or you can end the filibuster. It's your call, either way. But. <laughs> All right. Um, so, technically, you know, let's. I'm going to answer the politics part of your question at the end. Um, the world needs to try and hit a one and a half degree target. The machines that already exist on the planet today that burn fossil fuels, the cars, the natural gas heaters in your home the coal-fired power plants, the natural gas power plants, each of those machines has a natural lifetime. They live, you know, coal plants live for 50 or 60 years. Cars live for 20, 25 years. Stoves live for 15 years. Hot water heaters for 10 years. If all of the fossil fuel machines in the world live out their natural life, they will burn enough, enough fossil fuels to take us over one and a half degrees. So... What you have to do is make sure that as soon as possible, you have scaled up industry so that when a furnace dies, you can replace it with an electric heat pump. When a gasoline car dies, it can be replaced with an electric car. When a natural gas plant is retired, it can be replaced with a wind farm and solar cells. On a very aggressive schedule with the type of industrial focus that the US had in World War II with the arsenal of democracy, it would take us three to five years to retool the economy so that we had all of those things happening. That would mean- what, what would that actually look like? That would mean instead of Joe Biden saying, I'm proud to announce today that Ford is uh, going to, you know, the US is going to do 50% electric car sales by 2030. He would have said, I'm proud to announce today that we're providing incentives to help all auto manufacturers in the US convert all of their vehicles to electric vehicles by 2025. So we will not sell any 
um, fossil fuel vehicles after 2025. That's what that would sound like. That, that's what you do when you're on target for one and a half degrees. So it would have to happen by 2025. You'd have to be pretty much making sure that 100% of the sales of new cars by 2025, maybe 2030, 100% are electric, not 50% by 2030, which was a target, but a loose target, not a mandate. Right. So, so when your publisher at MIT said, okay, well, we're going to call this an optimist playbook, um, it sounds like that person wasn't sort of really thinking about the kind of political climate in, in the U.S. and you not having 60 votes or a filibuster waiver or whatever else it is. And, and, you know, while I think probably you, me, and pretty much everyone listening to this podcast has probably similar views on climate and what we should do about it, uh, I think I read the other day that this was the third highest year of emissions on record of 2021 because of natural gas prices sort of made fossil fuels uh, a lot more attractive as a result. And you have a president, Biden, who has issued good executive orders, knows what to do, or at least his people know what to do. He tried to get a lot of money in the Build Back Better Bill for climate programs. And yet, uh, you know, it doesn't seem to get any better at all. Glasgow was a total waste of time from what I can tell. So, okay, you have the solution, but well, you know, okay. well, you're let, not the so what yeah. do we do? Yeah, no, so I think that's an important, you, 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 You've given me a great platform to tell you what I'll actually what I actually has to happen, and this is this is politics. When politics is actually working, politics means leadership. When I think of leadership in politics, I don't think of very many contemporary politicians. I think of JFK. I think of FDR. I think of Churchill. Right. Yep. Let's ignore the characters of the individuals, but all of them showed genuine vision and genuine leadership and made their countries do hard things that ended up being good for the country. The price of natural gas, yes, last year is low, this year it's high. That's part of the problem with fossil fuels, they're volatile, but it's actually irrelevant. When every time we double the amount of solar energy we make, we lower the cost by 20%. Every time we double the amount of wind energy machines we make, we lower the cost by 12%. We need to have 10 to 20 times as much solar energy being produced, 10 to 20 times as much wind energy being produced, 10 to 20 times as many batteries being produced, 10 to 20 times as many electric cars being produced as there are today. What that means is the price of all of those things will drop by more than half if we commit to solving climate change. When all of those things, prices drop by more than half, Fossil fuels will be will look ridiculously expensive. Right. So the, the the market solves it for you, but only if the politics goes first. The, there's absolute. It's this. We are still all blindfolded by a Reaganism in the U.S. That's like the free market will solve all. All these markets are developed in concert and in partnership with government. That's always how it has been. That's always how it will be. Um. And with the correct commitment to that path, these things will be much, much, much cheaper. But we're told, you know, while the market is quote unquote free right now, which means, you know, the incumbent has a huge advantage of scale and a huge advantage of tax breaks and all the other things that are allowing it to win. So you would, a true leader would tell you, you know, it might be hard and it's going to be a tough couple of years while we get this up to scale, but I'm going to halve the cost of your energy bills in 2026 by decisions I make today. And that's how we should have sold Build Back Better, right? And are you, are you aware of a politician 
who thinks like that or, or doesn't. I've only ever, in, in my in the career I spent in politics, Mike Bloomberg was the only person I came across who said, I will uh, suffer short-term political pain for long-term subsidy gain. I don't think you, yes, that's true. I don't, I have met another. I think um, Senator Martin Heinrich of New Mexico, we've been working pretty closely okay. with on an electrification agenda and I think he gets it. Okay. Cool. And I think he would do, he, he wants to do those things. And I think he's capable. It's not about suffering short-term political consequences. It's about storytelling that, about things that people want to believe. It's like, I, 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 I can take your family to a better place where the air quality inside your home will be vastly improved and your energy prices will decrease because I'm going to electrify the furnace and electrify the things in your kitchen and your car will no longer have a risk of suffocating your children because it belches carbon monoxide. So the, the Biden people are good enough at narrative to get themselves elected to the White House. Um, and yet they, they couldn't take what you just said and make it enough prevailing wisdom that Joe Manchin would feel the need to go along with Build Back Better. Um, why do you think this has been so hard for them? I don't think they're as good at storytelling as they could be. And I, I think you really need JFK level of um, half of the Biden agenda is a, you know, let's let's kiss and make up agenda. Right. And it's not a um, okay, but, but Obama had that level of political skill and, and you know, and you, the ACA was significant, but on climate, he didn't really do anything. No, um, I'm, I'm still a little disappointed that he, he, he threw climate under the bus for the ACA. Right. So, so if, if either our politicians are, because you mentioned a few generational talents, right? Churchill, FDR, JFK. Um, if we don't have those generational talents, or when we had one in Obama, he chose to focus on something else, even at the, the explicitly sacrificed. Well, here's something crazy. I'm gonna, I, yeah. I, you, you, yeah. This is focused on the American experience. I'm actually moving to Australia tomorrow. You are. Yeah. I, I, when we before the podcast, you told me you were moving. I thought you were moving, like you know, like to a new neighborhood and across town or something like that. I didn't realize you were moving across the world. I'm Why? moving. I'm moving to Australia tomorrow after living in the U.S. for 20 years you know, complicated reasons. I live in a failed liberal city, San Francisco, that can't provide healthcare, can't provide sanitary services, can't provide schooling. Is a you know, it's a shit show. Um, that doesn't mean I vote Republican. <laughs> in fact, I'm, <laughs> I'm still a, just a permanent resident, so I don't vote. But like, it, it's not good here. I don't, you know, I have some influence on American politics through writing books, but it's, you know, we've we've had our shot at build back better um when i really i i my the the hypothesis of the book electrify was the logical leader for the world to really aggressively go after climate is to the us and it was also the opportunity for the us to reestablish leadership in the world and to create an economic engine as powerful as the one that it created after world war ii so you know i don't think it, it's not entirely likely that that's going to happen so here's another version of the narrative. Uh, Australia, the economics of going green are, are now in favor of the household. In the US, you have to tell a story. If we do these things by 2025, 2026, we're gonna have this great green revolution and we're gonna save a ton of money. That is already true in Australia. It's true in Australia because retail electricity is more expensive, retail natural gas is more expensive, all of the incumbents are more expensive than they are in the US and we, and Australia did one great thing. They made the cost of rooftop solar energy a dollar a watt. 
one third of the cost it is in the US. And they did that through clever regulatory and certification schemes. So it's not about technology, it's just about soft costs. Um, because of that, the next election in Australia is gonna probably be held in May and it will be both parties competing to have the most ambitious climate agenda. And I think there's a very good chance that Australia could show the whole world that by 2023, the recipe for solving climate change, which is electric vehicles, electric houses with electric kitchens, with electric heating, um, a huge amount of it provided by rooftop solar, the rest of it provided by industrial renewables, this is the path. And Australia will be able to prove that in the next few years and the economics saves a few thousand dollars a year for the average household. And I think if you do that, you can then, you know, one way to think about Australia is it's the 53rd state of America after Canada and Puerto Rico. Does anyone, in, has anyone in the US ever thought that or is it just sort of an Australian thing? Kind of like how Miami is the sixth borough of New York City. I think both political parties sort of think Australia is pretty compliant, pretty similar. Okay. Okay. Um, and I've, you know, there's Texas Republicans who have a deep affection for Western Australians and for Queenslanders because they're states that are sort of rugged individual mining states like Texas. And there are Democratic senators that feel, or de Democrats here that feel like, you know, New South Wales and Victoria feel like the, the coastal cities in the US. So, how much of the world can be, can do the right, be compliant? do what you're talking about, still have a U.S. and China that, that either can't or won't get their shit together um, and and we still solve the problem or, or avert some of the greatest harm. China is getting its shit together. I think that's a narrative I don't believe that it's not getting its shit together. It's moving. Oh, my God. The, you know, Despite not, all the coal power plants they're building? They're building those things because they make all of the world's stuff, which is you know 15% of the energy that's used in the U.S. is most likely – coal burnt in China making Barbie dolls for you. And like, you know, 3% of the energy that's used in the US is Russian natural gas making Audis and Legos in Western Europe for the American market, right? So when America gave all of its manufacturing away to the rest of the world, um, the rest of the world had to use energy to do it. So that's a lot of those coal plants in, in China that we blame China for are quite honestly supporting the American economy. Um, so, but China makes 90% of the world's solar, you know, similar numbers of the world's batteries. If you have a look at the growth in, in lithium battery plants in China, it's astounding. It's, it's 20 times the investment that America is making. They are doing all of these things that the future is going to need gobsmacking sums of. So I don't think they're doing nothing. I think they're doing more. And, and so some of the big ideas out there, at least people in the tech world, like talk about like geoengineering or like carbon capture. You're not a fan of those ideas. Uh, they are incommensurate with the problem. There's no way to build enough trees that sort of suck up more CO2 or sequestration plants to solve. Well, you already know how much energy it takes to sequester carbon. Chemistry, you, you can look on the back of the envelope with simple chemistry and you can say, okay, well, this is the minimum amount of energy it requires to take carbon dioxide out of the atmosphere and compress it. You'd have to use, you know, 10 or 15% of all the world's energy to be sequestering carbon fast enough um, to sort of slow this down. And we'd have to build out all of that as well as provide our current energy system. It's just, it turns out that it's just much cheaper 
not to make the carbon dioxide in the first place. Just to electrify everything instead. And and does yeah. does nuclear fit into this equation or no? Nuclear makes electricity. So nuclear is inbound for me in with electrification. It's not necessary in countries like the US and Australia, which have extraordinary renewable resources. But quite frankly, if you're in a very population-dense country like China, India, Southeast Asia, Indonesia, they're going to struggle to do electrify their whole economy without doing nuclear because there would just be too much land for solar and wind. So there will be, and, and there will be nuclear. So, what, how, yeah. so how, how should land use work? You, know, you, you write about it in the book. Um, if Again, if we'll, we'll make the emperor again, global emperor in fact this time. Um, are people moving more and more and more to the cities and then you're sort of reforesting other parts or does that not matter because that's sort of the ROI isn't there on that? Like what, 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 where should we be putting people? Uh, I think there's nothing wrong with the trend of moving people to the city. That's probably okay or good. Uh, you, you need to cover about 1% of the world's surface in um, solar and wind uh, machinery to, to run it all on renewables. In the US, for example, that's equivalent to the surface area of all of the roadways. So we, everywhere you see a roadway, you need to see solar cells and wind farms in, in an area equivalent sense. Um, America is big and doesn't have that many people compared to other countries. So China has, has almost 10 times the population density. It, it would need substantially more than 1% of its land to be dedicated to renewables to live the American lifestyle. Uh, Australia needs substantially less than 1% of its land because it's got so few, it's only got 25 million people in a land area similar to the US. And when you talk about living the American lifestyle, do you think it's realistic that people will ever sacrifice kind of what they want to have short term um, for their long-term safety? Or do you think effectively, you have to assume people will be selfish at all times and that's where electrification becomes the only way to really solve the problem. Yeah, and I'm, I, I didn't quite finish the last question, but let's go to this one. Yeah, um, sorry. The, I don't think you're going to convince most people to take a haircut on lifestyle. The message yeah. in the book Electrify, which won't be loved by some environmentalists, is honestly, if all you did was electrify everything in America, people could have the same size McMansions, the same size trucks, and we'd use half the energy and we could do it all with renewables or we could do it with renewables and some nuclear and it's completely possible. And in fact, the quality of life will improve because a lot of, you know, the noise will go away, the air quality will improve, the water quality will improve. Um, another way to think about it, the average American burns six tons of fossil fuels a year, 20, you know, 12,000, 15,000 pounds of fossil fuels uh, a year. That becomes about 35,000 pounds of carbon dioxide. All of that is just discarded like trash into the atmosphere. If you were to provide the same American, the same lifestyle, no discount, so not trying to take anything away from you and you did it all electrically, they'd need 100 pounds of solar cells per year to be made for them, 100 pounds of wind turbines and 100 pounds of batteries, but those things are about 80% recyclable, so they really only need 20 odd pounds of each. So think about that. We have an economy based on fossil fuels right now where we send 35,000 pounds per person to the trash can in the sky every year, whereas if we did it with electrification and renewable energy, 
it would you, you could supply that same lifestyle with only 50, 100 pounds of stuff. Yeah, which is in some ways, the question almost to me is, we, we can't expect people to take a haircut on lifestyle, as you said. I don't think we expect politicians to take a haircut on anything they think impacts their next election. And yeah, so, so I think it's, this, this was the opportunity and this was the purpose of the book. Look, Joe, stand up there and say, I'm going to give you a better lifestyle. I'm going to give you a faster F-150 that's electric. I'm going to improve the water quality and the air quality inside your home and inside your community. I'm going to lower your energy bills by half annually. So it'll go from $5,000 a year per American household to about $2,500 a year per American household. And we're going to do it this decade and we're going to lead the world. And because America is going to go first, they will develop the export industries for the 21st century and we'll sell that technology to Europe and Asia. And that will reestablish us as the economic king of the world. What would that cost? at least short term to do that. This is the fucking problem with, sorry, excuse me. It no. makes me angry. Everyone says, what is the cost? Um, yes, it costs money as an investment, but every country is investing in itself all the time. Yeah. If, if you do this, it would save $300 billion a year, $300 billion a year in the U S on energy bills, um, just in the residential sector in our, in our, your, 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 your gasoline, and diesel bills and your natural gas and your electricity bills. Um, it would probably save a trillion dollars a year across the economy if we do this aggressively and at scale. Um, yes, it will cost us 10 or $20 trillion to invest in ourselves to get to those savings, but that's a that's a fantastic return on investment and, and it's a good news story. Yeah, look, one, maybe one silver lining of COVID is all of a sudden the thing like the word trillions isn't quite as scary as it used to be. And so... Um, maybe now people feel that there's some precedent. Hugo's telling me one last question. I kind of want to switch topics real fast. Which So you're moving to Australia or back to Australia tomorrow. Um, what will you miss the most about the U.S. and what are you most excited to have that's going to be different? Uh, the U.S. is dynamic and has big ideas and does train a small segment of the population to have ideas and to participate into changing the world and inventing the future. And it's really an admirable thing that the US does. It hasn't spread that well far and wide and it's sort of concentrated in the elite universities. And so the thing I'll miss the least from the US is the horrific wealth disparity that is now on display, particularly in California, cities like San Francisco. It's it's uncomfortably um, divided, the, the wealth distribution in this country. So I won't miss that. Um, I will. I will miss the energy of Silicon Valley. Not all of it. A lot of it's arrogant, self-serving libertarianism, but a lot of it is actual genuine, <laughs> genuine innovation. Um, so when I can separate out the libertarian bit from the people who are trying to invent great things because they believe in a better future, I, I like that. Um, I look forward. Yeah, honestly, I didn't know where this was going to go, but. Australia has trust in government, did a pretty good job on COVID, has a highly functioning social, uh, healthcare system. It's not scary. It's not socialist. You can still have your private option, but everyone gets a minimum level of publicly funded healthcare that's fantastic. The public schools are still well-funded and they're, are doing great. And um, I'm excited for my son to go to a, an Australian public school and my daughter to go to another Australian public school. Um, I'm excited that they have six weeks of holiday a year. They have paid parental leave. They have all of these things that really I associate with a highly functioning first world democracy. 
Right. Which we no longer have here. It just doesn't feel like America has a, I mean, it's a tasteless joke when you're an Australian leaving the country after 20 years here. And I'm like, yeah. you know, I, I, I tasted first world democracy and I liked it. Yeah. You're, and you're literally voting with your feet. Uh, well, it's not even those voting with the feet. We like, we had a horrific experience with the public schools here in California and it damaged was, it was damaging my children. It was damaging my family. And, you know, uh, as somebody said to me, the, a family is only as happy as its least happy member. And we have a, we have a happier option. That makes me really sad because I committed a lot of my life and a lot of my effort to America and I will be back and I'm still doing a lot of work here and I'm maintaining my office here, but like, um, I can't fix those problems alone and I can't damage my children while I wait for it to fix itself. Um, hard, hard to argue with that. So, all right. So, uh, the book's called Electrify, an optimist playbook for a clean energy future. Uh, if people want to learn more about you in general, your work, everything you're doing, what's the best way to find out? Uh, otherlab.com, soulgriffith.com. You can almost certainly figure out my email if you just think about my first name and my company. <laughs> um, yeah. You know, I, factor I, in the time difference now. Yeah. Yeah. I actually, I appreciate the people who go to the effort to like figure out how to contact you. And then I, I mostly respond. And yeah, um, that's, that's what I do also. If, if, if I'm not, I shouldn't put this in the podcast, but like if, 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 if like you get some unsolicited spam on social, it's like whatever. But if someone actually goes to the trouble of figuring out, yeah, I have, I have a hiring policy in my office. If any 22 year old turns up at the front door and has made the effort to find us and come and ask for a job. I will give them the job. It almost certainly means they're fabulous. All right. So you've heard it here. All 22-year-olds looking for great jobs to show up at Saul's office on Monday morning at 9 a.m. And yeah, the world is, the world what's, is the, what's, what's the address again? The world is not. It's in San Francisco. Or the world will not so, uh, save itself. Uh, we need those young people to show up. Like we have one generation. It is their working career. I want those 22-year-olds ready to ready to get going. Yeah, absolutely. Saul Griffith, thank you so much for joining us. We really appreciate it. Okay, thank you.